This week on the Road to Cinema podcast, we talk with director Jeffrey Schwartz of the new documentary, The Fabulous Alan Carr. Through the 1970s and 1980s, larger-than-life producer Alan Carr thrust his way into the movie business, throwing lavish and wild parties at the infamous Hillhaven Lodge, while also producing one of the most successful movie musicals of all time, Grease, which catapulted John Travolta to superstardom. Carr was also a genius of movie marketing, creating a lot of the movie awards campaigns that we see now at the end of the year, where his first effort helped propel the deer hunter to win an Oscar for Best Picture. Alan Carr would also lead his success to Broadway, where he produced the Tony Award-winning musical La Caja Fall. Despite his great success and innovation in the movie business, Carr constantly struggled with his body image, his sexuality, and his perception in the Hollywood community, which led to Carr's infamous work on the controversial 1989 Academy Awards ceremony. Director Jeffrey Schwartz, who previously directed I Am Divine and Tab Hunter Confidential, takes us inside the detailed research and filmmaking process behind the fabulous Alan Carr, the incredible discoveries Jeffrey was able to find inside Alan Carr's former home, the Hillhaven Lodge, which is currently owned by Brett Ratner, who appears in the film. And we'll also have a detailed discussion behind the process and work of making a documentary film. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at jogroad, Instagram at jogroadproductions, like our Facebook page, jogroadproductions, and don't forget to write us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page for the Road to Cinema podcast. And as always, you can subscribe to our Jog Road Productions YouTube channel to watch some of our Road to Cinema video interviews with Don Cheadle, Hewan McGregor, Greta Gerwig, and many more. And now we join director Jeffrey Schwartz to discuss his new documentary, The Fabulous Alan Carr. And to learn more about upcoming screenings and the release of the film, please visit alancarrmovie.com. And you can also follow them on Facebook at Alan Carr Movie. Before we talk about Alan Carr, we could talk a little about um, how your career began, because for many years you were making uh, a lot of the DVD, behind-the-scenes special features. So how did you get started in, in doing that? It's funny, because we're in, what year is it? 2017? So yeah. <laughs> looking back now, there was like a golden age of DVD extras. And yeah. it's funny to look back now that that was a, a moment in film history, where DVDs in about 98, 99 were being introduced to the public as a new format. And the studios were trying to come up with ways for consumers to ditch all their VHSs and buy all the same movies all over again. So they came up with a term called uh, added value, also known as value added material, VAM. And they started hiring independent producers to create content. And this might be for a library title, uh, a documentary, a retrospective documentary about the making of a movie. So in 98, I got a job as an editor uh, on the remake of Psycho that Gus Van Sant was doing at Universal. Wow. So that summer I was editing and also shooting behind the scenes of Psycho, which was a really interesting and surreal experience because it was on the Universal lot. They built a new Psycho house in front of the old Psycho house, <laughs> and I got to hang out you know, wow. at the Bates Motel. And, it and was, that was the, the shot for shot remake it was of the Psycho. Shot, <laughs> it was the shot for shot remake, which was like confused everyone at the time, and people are still scratching their heads about that one, but I thought it was a really cool sort of art experiment, you know, to recreate yeah. a movie. And I got to hang out and got to know Gus Van Sant and got to, you know, be filming with uh, Vince Vaughn was in that and Anne Heche was in that and Julianne Moore. 
And we were there doing this little behind the scenes documentary, which was initially going to be for the EPK, just to release clips for the media. But it turned into a half hour documentary called Psychopath, which ended up on the DVD. And you can still see that. <laughs> I think the Blu-ray just came out and it's on the Blu-ray. Yeah. And that kind of led to my desire to keep doing that kind of work. And the studios, there was just this, I was in the right place at the right time and started doing work for Universal. And then MGM called, they wanted to do Spinal Tap uh, and Silence of the Lambs. And then New Line called, I think the first job was the first Final Destination. And that led to relationships with all the studios. And I built a company called Automat Pictures and started doing DVD extras from, yeah. for the next pretty much the next decade. Because at that time, pre-internet, to really learn about how a movie was made, it just you didn't have that access before those DVD features. That's why they became so important. It was almost like a film school for a lot of people. Yeah, and I've talked to younger people now who that was their first first exposure to how a movie was made. And it's just so great to, to know that that material is out there. And I've probably done, <clears throat> gosh, I don't know how many titles, but I mean, somewhere over 100 titles for sure. Wow. And I got to work with all these incredible directors doing documentaries about their films, but also audio commentaries, deleted scenes. So I got to do, I got to work with Jonathan Demme on uh, Philadelphia. Uh, I got to do a documentary about Blue Velvet and Fargo and Silence of the Lambs. And I mean, all these incredible movies. It was a great opportunity. And I, it was a factory for about a decade cranking out all these documentaries. And some of them are short form, you know, anywhere from five to 10 to 20 minutes. And some of them are feature length docs. Like yeah. there's one about Hedwig and the Angry Inch that the company did. We did one on uh, Rent. The, when the movie came out, we did a full length documentary about Jonathan Larson and his life and the, the creation of the Rent musical. And the only reason we got to do that was because there was a, a movie being made. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I <clears throat> love doing that kind of work. And it really all started uh, with Psycho and also the desire to do a documentary about William Castle and I had approached Sony who owned all the William Castle uh, movies like The Tingler and uh, Homicidal and Straightjacket. I pitched them the idea of doing a, a William Castle documentary kind of naively thinking that that's what yeah. studios do. I remember do. watching that on uh, I think it was on Turner Classic Movies yeah. many years ago. It was. Yeah. That's sort of that was my entree into Sony and they ended up giving me a, a assignments to do uh, I think the first one I did with with them was The Tingler and I ended up doing featurettes for all the William Castle movies. And then uh, at a certain point, I had enough material and I was shooting my own interviews on the side to put together a feature length documentary. So my desire to make that documentary got me in the door at Sony, which led to DVD assignments. Yeah. And then at a certain point, they, they let me have all the interviews. They gave me the clips and I ended up making the feature. That was my first feature film. They ended up licensing it for a box set of William Castle titles. And then, then I was a filmmaker. Even after doing all this um, <laughs> DVD stuff, it was really Spine Tingler. That was back in, um, came out in uh, 2007. We premiered it. And then since then, I've been making feature docs every few years. Yeah. The, the two I've seen uh, before, Alan Carr, uh, Tab Hunter Confidential, and then I Am Divine, uh, what sort of led you to these types of characters? Was there something in this world that sort of attracts you to these figures in a way? I'm really attracted to uh, People in show business, pretty much they've all been show business stories, but people who are sort of on the margins or on the outside looking, uh, from the outside looking in, and then were outsiders who became insiders. Yeah. And like also, Divine, who became very mainstream at a certain point. Absolutely. Yeah. And also all people who created personas, larger-than-life personas, to help them navigate through the world. You know, from, starting from William Castle, who kind of built this reputation as a as the cigar-chomping Hollywood producer, and he sort of played that 
part. Uh, and he, he wanted to be Alfred Hitchcock. And Hitchcock did the same thing. I mean, Hitchcock yeah. <laughs> created a, a public persona. And then I did a doc about a 70s porn star named Jack Wrangler, who was a scrawny little kid from Beverly Hills who kind of, you know, butched it up and went to the gym and created this macho persona named Jack Wrangler. Same thing with Divine, with the Divine character. He was Glenn Milstead, this, you know, sort of shy, overweight gay kid from Baltimore who created Divine, who was, you know, the opposite of all that. And he could channel all that kind of teenage rage into the Divine character. Tab Hunter was somebody who was created by the studio system. You know, he was sold as a product, uh, a movie star that would be the ultimate boy next door and the guy that every mother would like their daughter to marry. But meanwhile, the private side of him, he was gay and he was sort of living this double life. And uh, Alan Carr also created this over-the-top persona to help him navigate through the world and bring attention to himself. Uh, so with Alan Carr, how did you, uh, what was your sort of entree into that story? Because Alan Carr had passed away at the time. Uh, you know, how did you sort of pick up on, you know, who he was? Well, it started with Grease, and that movie came out when I was nine years old, and I was completely obsessed with Grease. I think you'll talk to a lot of people who were that age at that moment, saw the movie multiple times, had the soundtrack, had the trading cards, posters in my room, all that stuff. Uh, but I didn't really, I knew there was a person named Alan Carr, but I didn't at that time have a sense of what a producer did. And then over the years, I would hear more and more about him. Um, obviously, Can't Stop the Music, which is the Village People uh, musical that he followed up Grease with. I remember hearing about him when La Cage aux Faux uh, came out in the early 80s. Of course, the infamous 1989 Oscars. But I didn't really know his life. I knew all of the, the projects he was involved with. Uh, there was a book that came out a few years ago called Party Animals by Robert Hoffler. And that was the first a full-length biography of Alan Carr and that really put all the connected all the dots for me so I reached out to Robert optioned the book for a documentary and then we went about making the film and I discovered so much about Alan Carr that I didn't know even that was not even in the book you know that it really it, it, it's a really rich subject and he's also somebody who was at one point on the margins of show business who you know just flew into town with this big personality impossible to ignore had big dreams wanted to be a mogul wanted to be an old-school Hollywood showman, and he made that dream come true. Yeah. So uh, the research process for someone like Alan Carr, I know you have the book at hand, but how do you uh, really delve into all the details and find a lot of the archive materials, like the interviews that are featured in the film? It usually, well, in this case, it started with the book, and um, Robert had talked to a lot of Alan's uh, friends and people he'd worked with, so I, I, I reached out to a lot of those same people. Uh, but with Alan Carr, unlike, uh, let's say, the William Castle documentary, where I was working closely with the family, and with, in particular with Terry Castle, his daughter, she provided me all this incredible archival material because she's sort of the keeper of the flame. And with Tab Hunter, his partner Alan has been collecting Tab Hunter material over the last 30 years. So basically it was just a turnkey operation and I had everything I needed at my fingertips. Every movie Tab was ever in, every photo ever taken of him. With Alan Carr, there was no real, there was no family, there was no sort of guardian of his archives. There really were no archives. So that was the challenge. There were a few things left behind in his house. Um, when he passed away, Brett Ratner, the director, bought the house. And he currently lives in the house. So Brett had a few things, odds That's and ends. It's called uh, Hillhaven Lodge. Hillhaven right? Lodge, yeah. yeah. And Brett now completely embraces the, the legend of Hillhaven. He even has a whiskey called <laughs> Hillhaven, uh, Hillhaven Lodge. 
and he restored. We'll talk about the disco in the basement, but yeah. you know, he restored the disc, Alan's disco. So Brett had a few odds and ends. He had some a bunch of files. He had a one single videotape, which was a miracle that he still had this, which was um, a news crew in the '70s. It was the raw footage of a news crew covering one of Alan's disco parties. And Brett had found that in the house? Yeah, it was or, just lying. Wow. It was just there. And so most between of, the time uh, Alan passed away and Brett buying the house, and so no one else had owned it within that That's period. right. Wow, yes. That's interesting. All, the, all of Alan's stuff, I really have no idea where it ended up. There were just a few things left yeah. behind. You know, I, I just have this feeling Alan was the kind of person that probably saved everything and had scrapbooks and photo albums and things. None of that was at my disposal. Mm -hmm. But a few things... Remained, and then we went to the various archival houses that still had material, and then also his friends would come up with materials. The, the star of uh, "Can't Stop the Music," Valerie Perrine from Superman, she she ha she saved everything that she ever did in her career. She had videotapes of Alan on talk shows and herself on talk shows. She had a the only copy I could find of a TV special about the making of "Can't Stop the Music" that aired maybe once, you know, <laughs> at prime time, and she had that. Just happened to have it in her archives. So with all the, and then we uh, augmented it with animations, and uh, we decided to create little cartoon vignettes that go throughout the movie, little Scooby-Doo uh, moments where with Alan as a cartoon character to illustrate these pivotal moments in his life. Because we, you know, Alan, a lot of people accused him of being a cartoon character, so we yeah. decided to take that to the obvious uh, uh, end result and create a cartoon out of him. Yeah, no, I think that really works well for the film because it's sort of like with the kids days in the picture, there's like urban legend around yeah. like a like a figure like Alan Carr. So you can really sort of play off that mythology in a way. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really attracted to the mythology. I mean, I'm not that concerned, to be honest, if something's true or not. You know, if there's if people are telling a story, I just take it at their word that it's true, even if it's embellished or even if it's exaggerated, because that's what all these people I'm interested in making movies about do. They create a legend around themselves. So yeah. um, I like to celebrate the legend. I guess the, sort of the frightening thing about making a documentary going in is that you don't know what materials are available or even who you can talk to for on-camera interviews. Yeah. So at what point do you know the full structure of the movie? Is that something you really have to wait to discover once you're editing? Well, <clears throat> I had a sense of what the structure was going to be because I knew what his life was and I knew that I wanted it to follow a relatively uh, linear uh, uh, story that to get him from point A to point B to point C. We, st we ended up starting with the Academy Awards because that was sort of his ultimate achievement and also his downfall. So we start the film there and we, I knew I wanted to end up back at the Oscars again. But I really wanted the audience to understand how a kid growing up in the suburbs with no connection to Hollywood found his way there. So I, I decided to tell the story in a relatively straightforward, linear fashion. But um, yeah, we don't. We didn't really know. I didn't know how the story was going to be told because at the beginning, I didn't know who'd want to talk to me. So, we I reached out to everybody that Robert in, um, interviewed in the book, and then also a lot of other people that weren't in the book. And then people would just continue to come out of the woodwork. You know, we tried for a long time to get Lorna Luft. We finally got Lorna Luft, uh, Judy Garland's daughter and a very close friend of Alan's. She was one of the last interviews we did actually, but she ended up being one of the backbones of the film. So it's just a constant. Um, it's an evolution, and you spend the first maybe couple of years just getting to the point where you're ready to edit, where you feel confident yeah. that you have all the material you need to tell the story. Now, when you're going in to do an on-camera interview, do you sort of have a, an arc for how you want the interview to go that connects to what the whole story will be, if that makes sense? I do. I mean, I tend to shoot a lot of interviews, and uh, when I get a person in the chair, I just want to have a conversation. I just want to explore it fully. I mean, I know the beats that I want to hit for sure, but I let that person just sort of guide me in some sense of where they want to go. But with somebody like, let's say, Lorna Luft, I wanted to make sure to hit all the beats of 
her experience of attending Alan's parties in the 70s, which was sort of where they met, and then take that all the way through his career ascending, his career uh, with Greece ascending. He became a powerful figure in the town and made the biggest hit musical of all time. And then following that up with the biggest flop of all time, one of the biggest flops of all time, Can't Stop the Music. And she was with him all the way through the 80s, through the Oscars. So she was somebody who could kind of take us on that journey. But she brought a lot of surprises to the table. People I interviewed, uh, like a guy named Gary Pudney, who was a friend of Alan's for all through the 70s, you know, to the day he died, he had stories that I didn't know, like Alan losing his virginity. Like I never would have guessed that he would bring that to the table. Or he was there when Alan bought his first caftan on vacation in Mexico, and the caftans became part of his uh, his persona. So I'm just they're just little gifts that you get, yeah. and um, I, at some point it just all comes together, and you always have the exact right soundbite that you need. It just ends up being that way if you get enough people to interview you just have the material you need it's something like 60 interviews so you know there are some interviews that were maybe an hour long and i used two sound bites and you just know that yeah. going in uh, so you, it's sort of like almost like when you're shooting like a narrative film like you know you can shoot out a scene all day but you know you're sort of aiming for certain moments yeah there, there's yeah. a general structure um i always kind of liken it to a gigantic jigsaw puzzle with a million pieces with no picture on the box to follow <laughs> really so i love the editing process and i i'm always heavily involved in my in the editing of the films if not the editor um and uh, i just love kind of making order out of chaos and um that's usually the interviews form the backbone and then once the interviews are sort of in place, I call it a radio play. Yeah. Uh, well, other people call it that too. Um, then I just start to figure out how to have the best interplay between the interviews, the archival material, uh, animation, motion graphics, and keep it constantly moving and constantly lively. I mean, my films are primarily entertainments and I wanna keep the audience engaged and excited and happy and never knowing what's gonna come next. And the pace is always, Pretty, pretty fast. Somebody at a festival last weekend said they felt like they were on one of Alan Carr's cocaine jags when they were watching the movie because <laughs> it moved so fast. But that's what I, that's what I yeah, like. That's what's great with you know seeing the film on Divine and with Tab Hunter. There is like a great pace to where it goes. It's you know very quick. You know you really get a sense of who the character is. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I like to do. And I I learned from um, a great editor named Arnie Glassman. He was. Um, closest thing I've ever had really to a mentor in terms of editing and uh, he's since passed away but I, I learned really by observing his storytelling style in the documentaries that he edited and he specialized in the archival uh, material clips interviews archival uh, genre and uh, that's the genre that I like to play in and I credit him with a, a, a sort of helping me to hone a style. Yeah. Now, what's fascinating about Alan Carr is that I feel like someone like him doesn't really exist today. Like that's like an old mythology, like Robert Evans, or like a lot of those characters who we've seen in old Hollywood or nineteen seventies Hollywood. So, do you, do you do you think that Alan Carr is really sort of someone of a of another age in a way? Yeah, I I do to a certain extent, but there are still people that remind me of him like there are people when you think of producers you don't think well most people don't know what a, who a producer is or what a producer does but there were certain producers all through Hollywood history who were sort of a brand and a stamp of quality like Selznick you know or uh, Mike Todd or Walt Disney Cecil B. DeMille some of them were well Cecil was a director too but he was a producer yeah. and um, it was a uh, you knew what you were gonna get so Hitchcock too you knew what you were gonna get with a with a product 
with their product. Same with Alan Carr. Today, it's it's different because uh, the studios have a tight rein on their producers. There, uh, there are very few independent producers, and Alan was an independent producer essentially, who went from studio to studio with his projects. But today, you might have somebody like Harvey Weinstein. You might even have um, um, somebody like. Uh, Scott Rudin or people like that who really hone their material and are power producers. There are people like that. Um, but no, I don't think there's somebody out there who would create spectacle the way Alan did. And it all came from his brain, you know, yeah. from his brain. And he executed a vision for the movie, but the promotion of the movie was, in a, in a way for him, more important than the movie itself. You know, yeah. it was more important than the product. Yeah, he, I mean, he developed so much in terms of the way movies are marketed and awards campaigns, as you see in the film. I mean, he had developed the awards campaign for The Deer Hunter. His idea was to release it at the end of the year, and now every awards contending movie releases at the end of the year. And Yeah, that's true. Yeah. People didn't take him seriously because he looked, from the outside looking in, like uh, kind of a silly cartoonish figure. But at the same time, People had talked to me who were in the film about actually working with him. Uh, Tom Mount, who was running Universal around the time Deer Hunter was being uh, produced, he didn't know how he was going to sell that movie. And Alan was the greatest salesman that he knew. So he approached Alan. He said, this is a really difficult subject matter. It's about Vietnam. It's really dark. And how am I going to get people into a theater to see it? Because he knew this was a great film. And this was not Alan's kind of movie. I mean, Alan liked musicals and Judy Garland and things like that. Yeah. And... As he says it in the film, he didn't want to see a movie about Vietnam and poor people, which I thought was great. <laughs> but he was moved by the film. He thought it was an incredible achievement. And he came up with a scheme of how to remind Academy voters at the end of the year that the movie existed, really. So he came up with the first uh, uh, Academy consideration release schedule, which was to release the film in New York and LA at the end of the year for critics and for Academy voting Academy members. And he created awareness and buzz for the film. And the film ended up doing great business. It got Academy, many Academy Award nominations and won Best Picture. And Tom Mount, who's in the film, really credits Alan for coming up with that and for um, allowing the film to be seen by the, the tastemakers in Hollywood. Yeah, and now that's the way every awards film is released. And now that's, that's, <laughs> that's the, the way standard. you do it. That's the way you do it. And he created that. So he really deserves a lot of credit for not just that, but there are other uh, contributions that he made um, over the course of his career that are still being done today. Yeah, and then uh, going into the you know famous Academy Awards ceremony that he produced in 1989, like I remember seeing glimpses of that on YouTube. I never realized it was an Alan Carr production until you know seeing the film now. So I mean, how much of an impact did that have on his life in terms of you know wanting to move forward in his career? Do you think that was an impediment on him doing more work? Well. If people have heard at all about the 1989 Academy Awards, they know it's considered a debacle. You know, the quote-unquote worst Oscars ever, which I think is really unfair, and I hope this film sort of changes the perception of what that really was. But what it was was in 1989, uh, Alan Carr had just come off producing La Cage aux Faux on Broadway, which won the Tony Award uh, for Best Musical, and it was his lifelong dream to produce the Academy Awards. He'd been involved uh, with Governor's Ball, he'd been a consultant on past awards shows, but he wanted to produce the Academy Awards, and every year they assign it to a different producer. So this year, the Academy gave it to Alan Carr. And part of why they wanted to do it was, was to shake things up, because the Academy Awards had gotten stayed. It was sort of the same thing year after year, and Alan had ideas to do something bigger, more fabulous, more fantastic, that would be the most spectacular Oscars ever. 
And in particular, it was about the opening number, which he conceived and designed. And it was ultimately about a 15-minute opening number that was yeah. so complicated and over the top. And it was a, a narrative of Snow White coming to Hollywood, meeting all the old stars, going to the Coconut Grove, going to the, the Hollywood uh, landmarks. And uh, it had singing and dancing and guest stars, Merv Griffin, and it had all the old uh, actors in Hollywood coming back. Um, he did pull it off and the night of he thought it was a success but the morning after reviews came in there was a major backlash against alan and against that opening number the reviews really trashed it uh the more conservative members of the academy actually wrote a letter of complaint against the show and against alan and really all alan wanted to do was make a you know fun tribute to hollywood but there was a major backlash against him some people wanted to see him fail so the last 10 years of his life after the Academy Awards was a dark period. He definitely withdrew. Uh, we put, this is all in the film, so I don't want to give too much away, but he ultimately, um, this was so much of what he built up over his career was, was um, destroyed after the Academy Awards. So it was a tragic, uh, uh, so ultimately the, the story is a tragic story because of that. Yeah. And because he had accomplished so much, I mean, with Greece, I mean, that was one of the biggest films of the late 70s and you know, we're Broadway play had preceded it and uh, you know going into the 80s you know with La Caja Fall so to have that downfall is just really it's Hollywood you yeah. know <laughs> and uh, Hollywood as Lorna Luff says in the film it can be really cruel and there were people wanting him to fail there were people waiting for him to fail a lot of people didn't like Alan Carr he was uh, quote unquote flamboyant which was the code word for gay you know so he was somebody who wasn't never apologized for who he was he never apologized for his sexuality he never apologized for his 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 taste let's say which yeah. some people thought was questionable um, but it was his and the academy hired him so they knew what they were getting when they hired Alan Carr it was no secret of what kind of entertainment he specialized in uh, so I I hope people take another look at the opening I'm 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 not saying that it's great art or anything, but he 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 went for it, yeah. and I love people that go for it, and he went for it. Yeah, I mean, I would, even like today, I mean, the Oscars are criticized like almost every year. So yeah, you, you would think you, you can't know. win, you can never yeah. win, and any producer that takes on the Academy Awards is going to get that kind of criticism, you know. But with with Alan, it was beyond the pale; it really was, and you have to think that a lot of it had to do with just his history of maybe rubbing some people the wrong way over his career. And there might have been an element of homophobia to it, too. That's certainly possible because the approach was a very camp, over-the-top gay approach, uh, a sort of out of San Francisco theater. You know, So there might have been people who that rubbed them the wrong way, and they thought that it was making fun of Hollywood or making fun of the Academy, where, in fact, that was the last thing he wanted to do. Do you think that, I mean, homophobia in Hollywood then compared to now, do you think that there's a difference in terms of what Alan Carr went through when he was building up his career? Well, it's, it's interesting. One of the reasons I wanted to make the movie was to talk about sort of the limits of visibility, that Alan Carr could be outrageous, over-the-top, obviously gay, but he never actually said it. You know, there were no, I couldn't find one interview, even for The Advocate, which was a gay magazine, I couldn't find one interview where he actually talks about it. And even La Caja Fo, there was nobody, except for Harvey Firestein, yeah. there was nobody sort of openly gay in that production at that time. Later, um, Arthur Lawrence and uh, Jerry Herman came out later. But, um, you know, Alan's gay sensibility, you could see it in all his work, but there wasn't anything on the surface 
until La Cachefo, uh with the sort of a gay storyline that was on the surface instead of being But that wasn't subtext. something publicly he wanted to talk about. It was an era where that just wasn't really talked about. It was after gay liberation, so people were coming out, and behind the scenes in Hollywood, he could be open and, and have a, a, a gay life, but uh, you sort of kept that out of the boardroom and you kept that out of the press. There was an unspoken rule that the press would never report on a star's sexuality, a producer's sexuality. It was all innuendo between the lines. Uh, Bruce Valanche in our film calls it gentleman's agreement gay. That everyone kind of understands what's <laughs> yeah. going on, but nobody talks about it, which is a very different sensibility than now. Even though it wasn't really that long ago, um, after... After the AIDS epidemic, after the 80s, there was a, a different kind of mindset about people being out. It became much more of a, um, an issue for public figures to be out of the closet. And uh, Alan was from a different generation. You know, he grew up in the 50s, which was completely different mindset. You never would speak about these things. Yeah. Uh, what was something that uh, you discovered in the research process and putting together the film that really surprised you about Alan Carr that maybe you didn't really know about going in. That was one of the things that surprised me was the fact that he never really was out, even though you look at him. It, I guess it reminds me of like a Liberace or Paul Lind or people like that where everyone knows what's going on, but it never was talked about. So that's, that's one thing that surprised me. Um, I was also surprised about the, um, the deer hunter story, which is something that I, I little, knew a little bit about, but I didn't know well, for example, I didn't know that the head of Universal at the time really directly credited Alan with coming up with this scheme that people still uh, follow today. That was something yeah. I didn't know. Uh, and I was really glad to talk to a childhood friend of his, Joanne Cimbalo, who was friends with him throughout his life, and she was not in his show business world. So I really got a sense that he compartmentalized his his um, personal friends, his show business friends, um, and his gay friends. Like his women friends didn't know about what was going on after midnight at the mansion. You know, the, the gay part of his life, the women in his life, um, his people who he knew from when he was growing up, they were all sort of separate. And I found that really interesting. Yeah, he really had a different persona, really compartmentalized groups, you know. So he never really had the same identity with everyone, if that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. And then people, a lot of people didn't really know him that well. I mean, they knew him, but as Lorna says, and Lorna Love says in the film, there were very few people who really knew the real Alan because he didn't want people to know the real Alan. And he, there, were, there was a darkness there. There was a sadness there. There were insecurities there. I mean, he struggled with his weight his whole life. He was uncomfortable in his body. He had operations to deal with his weight. He wired his jaw shut. Uh, so he wouldn't eat at one point. He had a, he had his stomach staples in, stapled early on in the early 70s before that was pretty common, you know. So there's pain there and overcompensation uh, in in the um, in the career, and you know it's it's a very it's a very interesting figure to look at um, and a little bit of an, an enigma still to me today. Yeah, I was curious what other films are you working on now going forward. I usually work on a handful of things at the same time because you never really know which one's going to jump Is that just part ahead. of the documentary process to work on many things at once? I think you, you of, have to. I mean, yeah. I'm an independent filmmaker. I, I, it's not like these projects are being assigned to me by some grand poobah or some <laughs> studio somewhere. You know, I just I initiate the work myself. And yeah. I, you never know how long these are going to take or who's going to come on board to finance the movie or to sort of help you bring your vision to life. So I generally am working on more than one project at a time. Now I'm working on three or four things. Um, the one I'm sort of really excited about and starting to talk about is a documentary about Showgirls, the Paul Verhoeven's film, which uh, the documentary would be about the making of that film and how it was uh, completely destroyed by the critics and by audiences at the time, but was rediscovered 
as a, a cult classic and um, how the film has gone through this resurrection over the years and people are taking another look at it. So yeah. that's one that um, I'm working on now. Yeah. Now, Joe Esterhaus at the time, I mean, he was like the screenwriter. He was the guy. It was, was, it was yeah. Paul Verhoeven and Joe Esterhaus had just done Basic Instinct. And uh, Paul was going to do a movie called The Crusades with Arnold Schwarzenegger, a huge budget movie that Coralco, uh, this company that had, that had done Basic Instinct, was going to make. And they pulled the plug on The Crusades, even after they had spent you know, millions of dollars on it. They were even building sets and, and building costumes for thousands of extras. So they pulled the plug, and then Joe had this Showgirls script lying around. So Paul felt that he owed the studio a movie. And so they made Showgirls, and uh, because Paul... And Joe had had some dif differences during the making of Basic Instinct. Paul decided he wasn't going to change one word of Joe Westerhouse's script. So <laughs> the crazy dialogue and the insane situations that we see in Showgirls probably uh, are there because they didn't want to change anything. You know? So uh, and the over-the-top performances and the uh, ridiculousness of it, how much of that is intentional and how much of that is unintentional, well have to wait to see the film to really see that but Paul Verhoeven wanted to make a comment on the American dream and show Las Vegas in all of its uh, gaudiness and insanity and darkness yeah. too so he was really making a satire of the American dream and American values and it, but it wasn't taken that way and um, we have Showgirls which is probably one of the most exquisitely made pieces of trash that I've ever <laughs> seen and I, I love the movie so I'm, I'm really excited to explore uh, how an outsider artist trying to work within the Hollywood system made this, in my mind, really subversive yeah. film. It is a well-crafted movie. It had a hefty budget to it. It was a yeah. big studio production. Yeah. So I think people should revisit it. I mean, Oh, yeah, and it was yeah. the first time a, a movie was made intentionally with the idea that it was going to be NC-17. The filmmakers wanted to make a movie intentionally to push the boundaries of sexuality, uh, and they, they were going to make an NC-17 movie on purpose rather than make a movie and then get slapped with an NC-17. Um, but So that was going to be the test case for, is NC-17 a viable rating? And when Showgirls tanked, and there haven't really been that many NC-17's movies since then, yeah. and I don't think we're going to see a movie like Showgirls coming from a Hollywood studio maybe ever again. And that was really the last bastion of this uh this sort of mad genius Paul Verhoeven was going to make this thing. And he's still around, and he's um, he's given his uh, blessing to this documentary and is participating, and we'll roll it out either next year or the year after. We'll see. Huh. That's also he's being interviewed in the film. Yeah. Cool. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then lastly, I was just curious from, you know, one film to the next, do you feel like you're constantly learning every film, or is it sort of, you know, are you kind of developing new skills? Are you really picking up new things that help the projects? That's a great question. I mean, I feel like in some sense I keep making the same movie. <laughs> like I look at um, Alan Carr and it's almost a remake of this Bind Tingler, of the William Castle story. It's a very similar trajectory of a lot of these people's lives. So yeah, my next projects, I'm, I think I'm going to try to do something a little different, um, get, move away from the biopics and go into sort of more um, strange but true Hollywood stories like Showgirls. And there's a couple other things I'm working on that, that are a little bit different. But yeah, I, I, I'm always learning, um, learning new things. And I'm trying to keep my style nimble and changing and um, always looking for a new challenge. I've never done a, a complete cinema verite style film. I've always relied on sort of looking backwards into the past, but it would be really challenging to do something, uh, a story that's unfolding day by day now. I've never really done that before. I'm looking forward to doing something like that in yeah. the future. Is that something you're working on now? Or? No, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you never know. That would be a yeah. completely different style for me. So I think about that. I don't want to get stuck in a rut. I don't want to keep making the same movie. I want to 
try new things um, and try different genres. Like I'm working on a, a crime story now. I'm working on a series now, developing a long-form crime series. So I'm looking for new challenges and new stories. And uh, I, I just make movies that I want to see. You yeah. know, that's how I'm, that's how I decide to uh, take the plunge. Did you always want to uh, be in the documentary realm, or did you also want to make narrative films? Is that always, or is it kind of blended together for you in it, terms of interest? Or? It's sort of blended. I mean, I I went into school, for example, assuming that I was going to do narrative, and I started my first few years in film school was heading in that direction, and then discovered documentary. And my first doc in school was about um, Grandpa Munster, Al Lewis, who had a restaurant on Bleecker Street in Manhattan at the time, and I made a movie about. Basically, Grandpa uh, at the restaurant uh, greeting tourists and being this raconteur and being what was it like for somebody like him who everybody in the country knows from watching him on TV all their lives. Yeah. You know, what's it like when people encounter that kind of person in real life? That was sort of my entree into making uh, movies about uh, popular culture and the, the intersection between um, the public and the private and fans and celebrity and all that stuff. Um, and I feel like my movies are very narratively driven. I kind of use a, a, a narrative structure for the films, and I, I think of them as scripted movies, even though they're they're not, and uh, have no problem uh, um, uh, highlighting uh, legend, as we talked about before, as opposed to fact. I don't consider myself a journalist. You know, I, I consider myself a storyteller, and uh, these films are generally meant to be entertainments. Yeah, as a director of a documentary, it's through your point of view that the story is being told. Yeah, That's sure. It's important. A absolutely. I mean, everything yeah. is a choice and everything, you know, you, you sort of figure out what stories, what aspects of the story to emphasize and collapse and, and what to completely ignore. I mean, there's plenty in Alan's life that's just not on the screen there because, because it's, you know, I tried to keep the most compelling, entertaining stuff in the movie. Yeah, I want to check out the book. What was the book called? Party Animals. Party Animals. Party Animals. Right. It's uh, Robert Hoffler wrote it, and he um, wrote a book previously about Rock Hudson's agent, uh, Henry Wilson, who was also Tab Hunter's agent. So everything yeah. is sort of interconnected uh, with these films. Yeah. And how can everybody check out The Fabulous Alan Carr? Right now we're on the festival circuit, so we just launched at the Seattle International, and we're playing in about a month. We're playing at Outfest in Los Angeles, and we'll just be rolling out all over the country and all over the world over the course of the year. So we have a website, alancarmovie.com. People can go in there and see what we're up to. Awesome. And you guys are on uh, Facebook and Facebook, Twitter, yeah. the whole deal. Yeah, Alan Carr <laughs> would probably love it because um, you know we're, we're making a movie about one of the world's great showmen, so we have to uh, step up our game with. Uh, keeping people aware of what's going on and, and getting the word out. Yeah, that was a great trailer uh, on the site, too. Oh, good. Check out. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, I my appreciate pleasure. it. Thanks for listening to the Road to Cinema podcast. And to learn more about the fabulous Alan Carr, please visit alancarrmovie.com, and you can follow them on Facebook at Alan Carr Movie.